When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find a Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. This edition is with Sean Hackett from Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida. And he's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. So, Sean, how you doing this morning, man? Doing good, Casey. Doing real good. Well, we've got a few things to talk about this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and just start off with uh, the crop tour where we're at there. So, this is day uh, day three crop tour uh, was yesterday. And you know, day, two, day two was a little bit of... Um, Good, not great. Um, stuff was a little bit better than it was last year, but way off of the three to four bushels off of the uh, average three-year average. And you know, yesterday's results in Illinois were a little bit the same thing. You know, is it was good but not great. When you look at where they're at for the three-year average and those kind of things comparatively, some were up, some were down, just depending on where you're at. And you alluded to that uh, earlier uh, on Tuesday about you know I was in Iowa and I saw basically one side of the road was was not that good. The other side of the road was pretty good, and some of the stuff was really good. So it was kind of all over the place. So I think crop variability is kind of tell the tape here for this crop to it. It is. Um, all the, if you listen to what they've, you know, their interviews in the evening, which I think are very good, um, they mentioned how the variability is the thing that keeps popping out, just wide variability. Um, 
which means it's going to really be hard to get a true handle on this crop as we, you know, until the USDA is able to kind of get some much larger agronomic data, some test weight data and that sort of thing. But suffice to say, no one indicated anywhere thus far that they're seeing big surprises to yields, big looking crops. Everything is, you know, I think Iowa, they, Illinois, they said, you know, up one to one and a half percent from last year. You know, that's that's within the margin. I mean, basically it's about the same. Um, in Iowa, the north was um, up a little bit. The center of the state was down like almost seven percent, they said, which was a kind of a, a big – That was a, if there was any surprise, that was worse than expected. But then the south was – you know, a little better than expected. So when you when you walk through, work through it all, it doesn't look like anything's materially on corn, t- t- you know, really materially different from last year in these areas. And if you look at the USDA, you know, where they're at, the USDA is kind of saying yields are about what they were last year, give or take, you know. Um, soybeans were a little more consistently negative. Well, they didn't, they don't, they, they, they don't really do the yield, um, because it's too early, they do uh, the pod populations and the pod counts. But all of them were sort of down from last year pretty consistently. There weren't really any positive surprises. It just seems to me that the soybeans are more consistently off um, from last year. And with the heat that we've gotten, and we might get some more heat before the, 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 the growing season is over, there might be a need to adjust soybeans down not a lot, but just I, I think I think soybean yields probably need to fall a little bit based upon what they said and based upon the heat coming in here. Um, they've mentioned several times that there were a lot of pods that were right on the edge of aborting if they had any kind of material heat or dryness continue for an additional week or two, and it looks like some of those areas are going to get that. So, so I think soybeans probably maybe need to come down a little bit, but overall. <clears throat> You know, I, I don't see what the crop tour is saying as a reason to be more bearish on corn and soybeans than the market has already been. I think that $12.5 November soybean level and that $4.5 corn level is not going to be breached for the foreseeable future. And whatever, if we haven't already made the harvest lows, as you know, we've been expecting early harvest lows. We, already, we may have already made them, but... Let's say we have one more downswing. I, I don't see those levels materially uh, breaking down. I think those are going to be your uh, lines in the sand for a considerable period of time until we get a better handle on South American production as we get into the first quarter of 24. Right on. Okay. A lot of stuff to pay attention to there. I think this is, uh, this, this is one of the years where I think it's just going to be so much give and take and so much stuff like you talked about, you know, the bears are bared up pretty hard and heavy right now with not a lot more evidence out there that need to be any more bearish than what they are. But I think as you talked about earlier, no one's really going to know what we've got until we get into bin. And I think that's going to be. Um, well, and they, and they even said to be able to cuss. So I mean, still have a lot of development still to go and there's still a lot of weather to happen. I mean, this is just a snapshot, but you know, that we certainly, you know, corn, you can't, you have a, you know, much of the corn, whatever it is, it is. We maybe we don't know what it is, but it's done. I mean, soybeans still have some work to do. So yeah, I, th- I still think there's going to be a lot of uh, 
you know, we're gonna have to wait for harvest to come in, and we're gonna have to wait for several months of agronomic data to come in to really get a handle on what on what a, such a variable crop actually means when it nets out into the end result. Which which means, which which ultimately means, Casey, it's just not going to be a major driver for the most part for a while. Being the market's just not going to have the bears aren't going to get the the big crop yield to drive it lower, and the bulls aren't going to get the you know, big knockdown. It's just, it's, 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 it doesn't seem to me like, you know, it's going to be more factors like geopolitics, African swine fever demand from China, currency movements. Obviously, we're going to be starting to enter the South American uh, planting season. You know, what is that going to look like right now? You know, if, we, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Um, right now, it looks like we could be having a fairly wet pattern develop here in brazil potentially flooding risks for central southern brazil which means your first crop corn you know a lot of soybeans are planted in the south uh, center south um you know we could be looking at some possible you know planting delays um um you know and and, and but no you know obviously rain makes grain it doesn't mean that's horrible but i mean if you know that's the kind of thing that i think is going to kind of be what the market starts to shift to, given that we're, we're at a point where we kind of have some idea where the crop is at, but with such variability, no one's going to be able to really pinpoint it until later on in the year. So, sure. yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right, let's jump. I want I want your opinion on this because this is I've seen this pop up about two or three times now, and I just love your opinion on it. So, yeah, the BRICS countries, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, uh, they have been a uh, a loosely formed coalition of countries that are trying to be a, a trading partner and, and trying to build a, uh, you know, a, an economic hub of sorts that they can work through. Um, they're in a meeting right now, and there are several countries that want to be a part of that that group and what they what they are. On top of that, if you take a look at some of the articles I've read out of Brazil that show the Argentine peso, you know, we've talked about that several times on here and how it's the volatility of that is wickedly way off the charts in whatever direction you're going. And Brazil is urging Argentina to use the Chinese yuan to uh, uh, to be the, the basically the peg against so they can use that as a more of a stable currency. So I guess, Sean, as you look what's going on, uh, the BRICS countries and you look on where we're at with uh, Brazil and Argentina as far as trying to use the Chinese yuan to want to uh, to be a peg against uh, against their commodities. That That's a big difference in what we've seen here in the past when you start looking at how it compares to the U.S. dollar. I think if we look at the euro experiment where you had countries of very, very different uh, financial strength, very different economic strength, def very different uh, government policies. It's been a complete disaster um, because you had the weak countries dragging the strong countries down because you can't, you know, Germany and Spain are just not the same country. <laughs> and so, uh, Look, any country can trade with any other country in any currency they want. If they want to trade in their own currency, they can go do it anytime they want. No one's prohibiting that to happen on its own. But think this through, Casey. So the Argentine peso has been devaluing ever since I've been alive. Okay? Right. 
So how's that going to work? So, so, so you mean to tell me now that Argentina is going to get the benefit of being with the other countries who have stronger currencies? That the other countries are going to be okay with Argentina weakening their trading block? Um, you know, Brazil has more of a real currency, but Brazil's currency has fallen eighty percent in the last uh, ten years. A real winner. India has been devaluing its currency has been devaluing ever since I've been alive. Um, China's currency is not really a real currency. It's not really convertible. It's not really allowed to float. It's manipulated. It's weakening dramatically. By the way, it's near its lows in a long, long time. So, so it sounds like to me, you know, you got a bunch of clowns in the background trying to create, you know, create a, uh, you know, a group to. Uh, you know, go against um, you know the school for uh, you know for why they're not getting educated, right? It it doesn't make any sense to me. It makes great headlines. It's good visual politics, but in practicality, there's just no chance that's going to be a, a promising endeavor anytime soon. With the basket case that all these countries' currencies are currently are, and there there is nothing that I see that any country is doing to remedy the nature of these uh, basket case currencies. So they can trade in any, in any currency they want. And if they want to trade a, a block of horrifically awful currencies, that is that they are free to do that. But I don't believe that that's going to be something that's going to be in the, in, in their long-term best interest to do um, uh, unless, you know, they come up with some way to really change the way these countries are run um, and at the end of the day, India is going to is going to run the way India wants to run. It's not going to make changes to India because China's unhappy with what India is doing. It's not going to happen. So, so great visual. Um, you know, there's there's this huge view, uh, attack against uh, the global uh, U.S. currency uh, dollar uh, standard, obviously because we've been abusing it, and I get that. But that's not the alternative. The reality is there is no alternative. At the moment, um, there is no liquid currency that can replace the dollar. There is no other country that is, and as 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 much as the United States is in a very weak position uh, financially, like we've not seen in a while, we're still the best, you know, the the, the best house in a, in a bad neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? Sorry about that. All right. So I, I still feel we're still the best house in the bad neighborhood. Yeah. If you're going to replace the U.S. dollar, I don't believe it can be um, a group of uh, very weak currency countries. I just I think it needs to be some kind of a standard. Whether it's Bitcoin is the standard. Whether it's the um, uh, the the inter international monetary fund currency that I think the way it's ultimately going to work out is you're going to have some trading standard that's not driven by any country that everybody trades in, but everyone's currency still trade relative to that. So you want to trade with it? We want to trade internationally. All right, we're going to trade up here. So you convert up to there. We're going to trade up here, and then we're going to bring it back down into our currencies. But we're going to we're going to clear the transactions 
with this standard. We haven't developed that standard yet. Um, you know, the special drawing rights have continuously been uh, what most smart people on this topic have suggested that we're going to go to a some kind of that special drawing rights standard. Yeah. Um, and and then we trade there, and it's 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 a it's settled there, and the dollar and the yuan and the real all trade differentially based upon whatever we're doing in our own countries. I believe that's where we're heading. The BRICS wanting to trade a trading block. Well, that's fine. Go ahead, but it's not going to be a serious block that's going to be closing and transacting um, serious volume um, on the international scale. Don't see that happening. Kind of what I thought too. You look at the list of countries I want to jump in. Uh, okay, you know, it's it's to your point. I mean, they're all either have value devaluating um, currencies or they're all um, struggling with, with some economic issue at the point. Of time. So, yeah. All right, let's jump over and take a look at some of the markets here. So, you know, cotton something we talked about from time to time, and I kind of want to get your your feedback on that. Cotton has had a um, uh, you know, pretty topsy turvy run. It's kind of hung out there in the in the mid to high eighties over the last uh, couple of months here, and we've seen some pretty good stability there. As you're looking at the cotton market, what are your thoughts there, and how do you see it reacting moving forward? We still like the cotton market a lot, even though demand, you know, is still a, a big question mark. We just think production problems are far outweighing that right now. Um, the Indian drought continues to escalate. Um, it's getting very, very – we're talking about potential 7 to 12 inches below normal rainfall um, as if, you know, given what we've currently seen in August and it looks like we're going to continue to see in September in those key – in that key northwest area of Gujarat. Um, sugar price is the same thing or rice prices, you know, rice production – it, the drought in, in India, which is one of our hot spots for the year, as you know, we talked about this earlier in the year, that India was the, was one of the spots to watch for a major drought to develop. It's happening. And um, and then when we look over in China, we know that their northwest cotton belt has seen record hot temperatures, extremely dry conditions, and they've had excessive flooding in the east. Nothing good is going to go on with the cotton crop in China. And China cotton prices have been rising uh, pretty substantially. And when you look at the ratio between the price of U.S. cotton and the price of Chinese cotton, we're at historical undervaluation. Where that is to say that U.S. prices are undervalued relative to China. Historically, it has meant a bottom in the price, in the U.S. price, and it's meant a pickup in sales to China because the deal is too good for them uh, to ignore. So, you know, and of course, the U.S. Texas is continued to be hot and dry. Uh, you know, a key, key key state where almost half the cotton is grown. Um, so once again, we're not going to have a bin buster cotton crop by any stretch of the imagination either. So when I look at all of those factors, I, I just I, I I believe the market needs to continue to work itself higher. And at some point, China, uh, uh, case China demand or global demand for cotton is going to improve. I don't, we're not going to stay in a depressed demand environment forever. At some point, you know, people go out and, and, and things get better. It, it's just the way it works. So, um, you know, we had that run up to almost 89 cents. We had a setback and now we're rallying back up again. I still feel, you know, that we're destined to trade in that, you know, 
90 cents to a dollar area, resistance area before the end of the year. And that might be a good place for producers to think about making some sales at this point. But I really see the downside based upon production being fairly reasonable. And I think there's upside price risks right now. I definitely would want to be, pre- you know, if I'm a buyer of physical cotton, I, I want to make sure I got, I got some supplies bought here. So. All right. Yep. Okay. All right. Let's jump down and talk about one more thing on the energy sector side. So we've watched oil bang around in the 70s um, for quite some time. We've bounced back out of that. We're up into the mid-80s. I guess as you're looking at, at oil, it, it's kind of stagnated there, just like we saw it um, stagnate in the 70s. Uh, I guess as you're looking at what's going on in the oil market, what are your thoughts there moving into uh, the end of the year? Well, Saudi Arabia and OPEC have decided to withhold production to stabilize the price. Um, we've put a little geopolitical premium back in. Um, there's been some surprise about the strength of the U.S. economy, at least the way the numbers have come out. Um, if you look at the at, – at, even though everyone, the media has played up the Chinese economic Armageddon collapse – as they've been just pumping this story now for over a week, if you take away the over-ebullient media, which always tries to create fear in the world, and you actually look at the demand for crude oil from China, it's actually pretty strong. So, so I think what's happened is you know that people were trading a global recession when we were down at seventy and sub 70 and then when you actually look at the actual data demand data it's been a lot better and then when you when you have the, the OPEC tightening supplies it's brought the market back up to maybe a more appropriate you know $80 level at this point so i don't really i don't really see the the strong rationale for prices to you know jettison much higher unless geopolitics gets involved and it very well could get involved. But I think you would need geopolitics to get involved to get us materially higher than, let's say, 85, which we've already tested and now have corrected back down. If you're going to get yourself up in the $90 to $100 barrel area, something geopolitically has to happen, whether that's a problem. You know, some was a few years back, there was an explosion of the Saudi Arabia. For fine, you know, something has to happen geopolitically, in my opinion, to get ourselves over 85 based upon what I perceive to be the correct supply demand equation, which I think is fi- we're fairly priced at 8085 right now. So, okay. All right. And finally, take a look over at what's going on in the cattle market. Cattle market's been banging around all over the place, kind of here and there. Uh, you take a look at what's happening over the last couple of weeks, Sean. What are your thoughts there? Well, prices have corrected about five to six percent off the highs over the last kind of in a sneaky decline here. Um, Australian cattle prices have crashed 40% here in the last six months. Brazilian cattle prices have crashed 40% here in the last six months. Um, Brazil and Argentina, I mean, and uh, Australia are much more export driven markets, Casey, where we're much more of a uh, internal driven market. We have exports are somewhat important, but they're not the key driver for our markets. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is how long can the U.S. cattle price remain at these levels when you're two of the largest suppliers of beef have seen their cattle prices crash 40%, especially Brazil, which, you know, they're a big seller of, of beef to, uh, 
to China. We've made indications before on your show that this the cold storage beef supplies in Asia across the border are maxed out. It just doesn't look to me like there's a lot of upside here, and it looks to me that we could enter some kind of a demand air pocket in the U.S. price. I don't, you know, because we liquidated so heavily, and because we are going to be herd rebuilding, um, you know, I, I don't believe we have 40% down in our market. I want to be very clear about that. The other markets are much more export driven and haven't had the same type of herd liquidation problems that we've already experienced, and they don't have to rebuild the herd like we do. Having said that. You know, can the market, this market drop 10, 15, maybe 20% off the highs? Yes, it can. And I think that's the risk going into the fourth quarter. And if I'm a livestock producer in the U.S., despite how bullish you feel, um, and despite the fact that I am constructive on the market in 24, you, know, you always have to sell. You always have to make sure if you have a good price that you have to avoid an air pocket so you don't you know, sell, sell give away margin when it exists. I think this is that time. You know, prices have already fallen five or six percent already. Um, I certainly would be increasing my protection to the downside and getting more of my cattle sold here into the fourth quarter. I just don't see the basis for a lot of upside risks, and I see a lot of reasons for downside risks at this moment in time. Right on. Okay. Sean, thanks for being on the podcast. Good stuff as usual. Folks, on to reach out to you, give more information about what you're doing over at Hackett Financial. What's the best way to do that? We have a Twitter page at Faradex11. We have a LinkedIn page as well. We also have a website at Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com, where we post interviews and snippets from time to time that goes, up, that goes over our weather work, our cycle, statistical work, and how we make our forecasts. Right on. Well, Sean, I appreciate you being on the podcast, man. Look forward to talking to you next week. Sounds good, Casey. Same here. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast, and you can go to the YouTube channel and see the video version of this at the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related. And with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Let's go move some iron, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's IronComps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hard work. 